Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Wednesday, August 9th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. President Biden is expected to ask for more Ukraine funds this week. So the White House is expected to formally ask Congress to authorize additional funding for the Ukraine war as soon as this week. This is based on a report from Punchbowl News. They cited sources familiar with the matter. A lot of you probably haven't heard of Punchbowl News. They're a relatively new media outlet that started in 2021. But I know just other scoops I've seen them have turn out to be right. And so I figured this was worth highlighting here. So the funding would be in the form of an emergency supplemental bill that would also include money for domestic disaster relief and potentially military aid for Taiwan. One source said that the request is expected to be north of $10 billion, but the Biden administration is still working on setting up the final number. So far, Congress has authorized $113 billion to spend on the war in Ukraine. So Financial Times previously reported that President Biden wanted to include money for Taiwan in the next Ukraine spending bill. And that Financial Times report said that the request is expected to be made in August. So that kind of lines up with this Punchbowl report. Um, So the Punchbowl report said that Taiwan aid could be included as a sweetener for Republicans who might otherwise oppose more spending on the Ukraine war. And I think that's a lot of what this is about is trying to, you know, because there are a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of Republicans that oppose more aid for Ukraine uh, do so because they think the U.S. should be more focused on China and Taiwan, you know, which is kind of depressing (laughs) when you think about it. But, um, and we know, you know, the opposition to the Ukraine aid in Congress is still relatively small. Uh, Back when the House was putting together their version of the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act, Matt Gaetz put forward an amendment that said, let's cut off all military assistance to Ukraine. And it failed pretty badly, but 70 House Republicans voted for it. So that is a small number, but it's not an insignificant amount of opposition. And the opposition to funding the Ukraine war, funding this proxy war against Russia, could grow as the counteroffensive drags on, as it's clear that that the counteroffensive has been a failure. Um, but I think right now, if Biden asks for more Ukraine funding, I think he's going to get it. Um, so we'll see if this this plays out. If if they request this this week, I know that you know these this debt ceiling deal that was reached between House Republicans and the White House. It put no limit on these supplemental funding bills, which is how the U.S. has been funding the the war in Ukraine. You know, they call it emergency funding. And McCarthy, the House Speaker, has said that he doesn't want to, you know, do too many that that to make it go way above, you know, the debt ceiling limits. But I just doubt that he's going to oppose any kind of funding for Ukraine. I would be really surprised if he did. He's been a very staunch, you know, um, backer of this war. All right, so the next one here, the U.S. approves its first batch of Abrams tanks for shipment to Ukraine. 
So the first batch of Abrams tanks that the U.S. is providing Ukraine was authorized for shipment over the weekend and is expected to arrive in the country in early fall. And this is something that the U.S. Army's top acquisition official said on Monday. Army Acquisition Chief Doug Bush said, quote, The last of the set was officially accepted by the U.S. government or the production facility over the weekend, so they are done, end quote. The U.S. will be providing Ukraine with 31 refurbished M1A1 Abrams, which is an older variant of the tank. The U.S. initially said that it would send the newer M1A2 Abrams, but the Pentagon decided to speed up the plan by sending older tanks. The M1A2s needed to be manufactured, and it would have taken years to deliver. So they say they're expected to arrive in the fall, and from what I've seen, it sounds like they're expecting them to get to Ukraine in September. Bush said that while the tanks are ready, it will still take time to deliver them and send necessary related equipment, which includes ammunition, spare parts, fuel equipment, and repair facilities. So there was a report from the Wall Street Journal in July that said the U.S. has expected to arm the Abrams that it sends to Ukraine with depleted uranium rounds, which are a toxic ammunition that's linked to cancer, birth defects, and environmental damage, especially in Iraq, where the U.S. forces have used an enormous number of depleted uranium rounds, including during the Gulf War and during the invasion of Iraq. And, you know, at years after the invasion as well. So when asked about the possibility of sending depleted uranium to Ukraine, Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder said on Monday that he had nothing to announce. So we don't know yet for sure if they're going to get the depleted uranium rounds. I think there's a very good chance that they will because the UK has already been arming Ukraine with depleted uranium to use with their British-made Challenger 2 tanks, which Ukraine already has. Um, and if you remember back, you know, earlier this year, so for a while, you know, the U.S. and Germany, they ruled out sending tanks. They said, no, this is too big of an escalation. That's at least what Schultz was saying, the German chancellor. He was arguing that he was trying to prevent World War III, that he was trying to prevent nuclear war. That's why his country didn't want to send tanks, didn't want to send jets. But now they've sent Ukraine. Most of the Western-made tanks they have are the German-made Leopard tanks. And he's facilitated the transfer of Soviet jets to Ukraine. So, you know, this is just an example of that escalation ladder that they keep climbing. And the depleted uranium is a big one because Russia's response, according to Putin, after he ordered the deployment of nuclear weapons to Belarus, he said that he did so in response to the UK providing depleted uranium. They said they were going to treat that as Ukraine getting supplied with a dirty bomb. Um, so it's pretty serious, and uh, I guess we're going to see these Abrams tanks arrive soon. All right, the next one here, Ukraine declares war on Russian shipping in the Black Sea. So a Ukrainian official told Politico on Tuesday that all Russian ports and ships, including commercial vessels, are considered legitimate military targets as the war in Ukraine is escalating in the Black Sea. So this is Oleg Ustenko. He's an economic advisor to Zelensky, which is kind of interesting that he would say something like this. But he said, quote, everything the Russians are moving back and forth on the Black Sea are our valid military targets, end quote. 
So the comments came after Ukraine attacked a Russian commercial port and a Russian tanker. According to Ukrainian security service sources speaking to the media, the tanker that was targeted, the SIG, was hit by a sea drone packed with 992 pounds of TNT, and the attack blasted a hole in the vessel's engine room. So attacks on commercial ships, it seems like they're going to escalate. And again, this is a very dangerous, slippery slope because there's so many you know, U.S. and NATO ships and planes and trucks carrying all sorts of equipment. You know, they're saying that oil that the Russian military uses is a legitimate military target. Well, I mean, apply that to all the stuff Ukraine is getting from the West. This is seriously could, you know, give Russia another pretext for strikes on NATO. Um, you know, there's no sign that Russia wants to do that. I think it's pretty clear they're trying to avoid a war with Russia with uh, NATO. But you just don't know what how things could spiral. You know, if they start really hitting a lot of commercial ships. So Ukraine is saying that the attacks are retaliation for Russia's bombardment of Ukraine's ports, and Russia has been really bombing Ukrainian ports on the Black Sea and the Danube River which the ports on the Danube River are just across from Romania, which is a NATO country, so there's a big risk of escalation there. Um, and that came after Russia said it would not extend the grain deal, which facilitated the export of, of grain from Ukrainian Black Sea ports. Russia said that it was not satisfied with, US, uh, with Western and UN efforts to make it easier to ship Russian agricultural goods. They say they'll rejoin the deal you know, once more sanctions are lifted their big demand well any sanctions are lifted because sanctions haven't been lifted their big demand is to uh, put their agricultural bank back on the swift payment system which is the U the u.s part of the u.s led financial system it's a it's a messaging system for financial transactions um so again i think you know, it sounds like this is really going to escalate these attacks on ships and just this war, you know, extending out into the Black Sea. You know, how far will it go? I know Ukraine, Russia said that Ukraine did try to attack ships near Turkey, uh, Russian military vessels. That was a few months back. But now they're saying they, they did target one commercial ship and they're saying it's going to happen more here. All right, uh, the next one here. Ukraine offensive is extremely unlikely to succeed. So a Western official told CNN in an article published on Tuesday that it's extremely unlikely that Ukraine will make progress in its counteroffensive in the coming weeks that will alter the balance of the war with Russia. So this official said this is an unnamed senior Western diplomat. This official said, quote, they're still going to see for the next couple of weeks if there's a chance of making some progress. But for them to really make progress that would change the balance of this conflict, I think it's extremely highly unlikely, end quote. So this report also quoted Representative Mike Quigley. He's a Democrat from Illinois. And he said that the briefings Congress has received on the counteroffensive are sobering. And he said that the situation was the most difficult time of the war. And as we know, leading up to the counteroffensive, the Discord leaks and media reports revealed that the U.S. did not believe Ukraine could regain much territory, but they pushed for the counteroffensive anyway and rejected the idea of a ceasefire. And Ukraine is struggling to break through multiple layers of Russian defense, most notably vast minefields. Another separate report from the Wall Street Journal 
quoted a Ukrainian platoon commander in an article that was published Tuesday who said the Ukrainians are demining the fields with bodies. They say they're demining the fields with Ukrainians. And this platoon commander described it as awful. There's the situation. And another Western diplomat told CNN that Ukraine hasn't even gotten through Russia's first defensive line. This official said, quote, even if they would keep on fighting for the next several weeks, if they haven't been able to make more breakthroughs throughout these last seven, eight weeks, what is the likelihood that they will suddenly, with more depleted forces, make them? Because the conditions are so hard, end quote. So just more sign, you know, the narrative that Ukraine has a chance of winning this thing is completely gone from the media. We've seen a lot of examples like this. Um, and this comes after, you know, the U.S. said Ukraine was making their main push, their 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 main thrust of the counteroffensive. Uh, but it doesn't seem like that has succeeded. And if you see the map here from south front of the battlefield, you see just the lines haven't changed. have barely changed, and there's lots of fighting along the front. Lots of people are dying. Um, all right, uh, so I just want to take a moment to mention our sponsor for today's show, which is the Expat Money Summit, which is hosted by Mikkel Thorup, the head of Expat Money. So if you go to expatmoneysummit.com, You'll see information about this big online conference that they're holding from October 2nd to October 6th, where you could learn all sorts of things about um, moving out of the country or setting up a you know secondary residence, sort of a backup plan. And it's the only event of its kind. And the best thing about it is that it is free. So if you go to expatmoneysummit.com, you can reserve your free ticket by entering your email. And you can use the link that's in the YouTube description or the show notes on the po- if you're listening to the podcast. Um, click on that link and go put in your email. Again, this is, I think, a really great resource for people. And me personally, you know, I've thought about moving out of the U.S. in the past. My wife's Australian, so that's always a place, kind of a backup plan. And, you know, I always kind of like the idea of having another place where we could go if we had to, even though Australia might not be the best place. But still, you know, um, you know, my son has the option to get Australian citizenship. Um, So, you know, I think, again, it's just a really interesting resource and interesting thing that people, especially in this day and age, as more people work online, could think about if you're looking kind of for more freedom and more options is other countries and What's great about what Mikel does is he he tells you about, you know, all different options for places to go. Uh, he's in Latin America, um, which we concluded was probably the best place to be, you know, South America, if World War III does break out. That was when I was on his podcast. But go check all that out, expatmoneysummit.com. Uh, he's a listener of the show, supporter of antiwar.com. So please check it out. And there's lots of speakers. Um, All right, back to the news here. The next one, the Wall Street Journal says that U.S. cluster bombs are fueling Ukraine's counteroffensive. So the Wall Street Journal reported Tuesday that U.S. provided cluster bombs are fueling the Ukrainian counteroffensive and detailed how Ukrainian forces are using the civilian killing munitions against Russian soldiers. So as I'm sure you know, the reason why cluster bombs are so harmful to civilians is because they are designed to spread small submunitions, or what they call bomblets, over large areas 
and some of them might not explode, making a hazard for civilians to find them later on. The U.S. dropped millions and millions of cluster bomblets on Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, and they're still finding them today, decades, decades later. They say it could take hundreds of years to clean up. So that's what Ukraine has been using to fuel its counteroffensive. Ukrainian soldiers said that they're using the cluster bombs to hit concentrations of Russian soldiers and vehicles. Uh, the report said that the cluster munitions have helped Ukraine capture some Russian positions, but acknowledged that the gains come at a high casualty cost. They quoted a commander of Ukrainian reconnaissance company that said the cluster bombs are effective, but that the Russians are dug in deep and that they learn quickly. The bombs won't be enough to tip the balance of the war in Ukraine's favor as the counteroffensive is struggling, as we just went over. But they are enough to keep the war going, to keep fueling this thing. As Secretary of State Antony Blinken has even said that Ukraine would be defenseless without them. And that's the excuse that Biden used to send these, again, civilian killing bombs, munitions, notoriously, you know, it's just there's no excuse to be sending these things over there. And their their justification is that Ukraine could not keep fighting if they didn't. So it is, in fact, fueling this war, these cluster bombs. And uh, I, I again, that quote from the Ukrainian platoon commander who said that they're demining the minefields with bodies that came from this report. So I put that in there. And other Ukrainian soldiers said that the cluster bombs were useful in clearing trees and ground cover so they could better see the Russians. Uh, this one infantry private said, quote, with the cluster bombs, you fire three times and the trees totally collapse, end quote. And again, you know, these are probably rural areas that they're fighting in mostly where these trenches are dug in. And that's the issue is in the rural areas, it's usually farmers or children, you know, playing in forests that come across these things. Um and they are banned by more than 100 countries because of their indiscriminate nature. But the U.S., Ukraine, and Russia are not signatories to the treaty. And last year, the White House called the potential use of cluster bombs in Ukraine a potential war crime. But they have very much changed their tune. All right, the next one here is from the Palestine Chronicle. Uh, Israel warns that it can return Lebanon to the Stone Age. So quite the threat from Israel against Hezbollah in Lebanon. So Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant warned the Lebanese resistance movement Hezbollah on Tuesday, threatening to send Lebanon back to the Stone Age in the event of an escalation or conflict. So he also warned Hezbollah, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah not to make a mistake he said, quote, don't mistake us. We don't want war, but we are ready to protect our citizens, our soldiers, and our sovereignty, end quote. The Israeli defense minister made his remarks in a video while visiting the Israel-Lebanon border. So tensions between Israel and Hezbollah have risen in recent months, with Hezbollah having erected two tents in the Sheba Farms area in response to Israel's construction of a fence around the nearby town of Gajar. So Sheba Farms, how I understand it, um, Israel annexed it when they annexed the Golan Heights in 1981 after they withdrew. Uh, but, and Sheba Farms was kind of disputed between Lebanon and Syria, but Lebanon uh, claims it and Hezbollah, you know, they say it's occupied by Israel. So there's always tensions there and they seem to be rising. Um, so things could always, you know, kind of break out there. 
All right. So the next one here, the U.S. Navy responds to Russian and Chinese ships near the Aleutian Islands. So the U.S. deployed four Navy destroyers in response to Russian and Chinese vessels operating near Alaska's Aleutian Islands, which stretch far into the northern Pacific Ocean. The incident occurred last week when 11 Chinese and Russian warships were conducting joint patrols near the Aleutians. It's not clear how close they got to the islands or to Alaska's territory. Um, And if you're watching here, you can see the map of Alaska and the Aleutians stretch very far out. And then um, there's some Russian-controlled islands not too far away, islands that are Russian territory. So, you know, this is a pretty big stretch of area where these vessels could have operated, whether in the Bering Sea, which is north of the Aleutians, or down in the Pacific Ocean. Um, So Northern Command, which is uh, the U.S. command that is responsible for this area, said, quote, air and maritime assets under our commands conducted operations to assure the defense of the United States and Canada. The patrol remained in international waters and was not considered a threat, end quote. So that's what the U.S. military is saying. Of course, you're going to get bluster from other U.S. officials. So it's interesting because the U.S. insists that it has the right to patrol sensitive waters near China and Russia, such as the Taiwan Strait and the Black Sea. But Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan, who's a Republican, he blasted the patrol as, quote, another reminder that we have entered a new era of authoritarian aggression led by the dictators in Beijing and Moscow, end quote. So some pretty serious rhetoric there. Sullivan said that he was happy that the U.S. Navy deployed destroyers to monitor the Chinese and Russian vessels and said that their response to a similar patrol that took place last year was not adequate. So for their part, China said that the patrol was not directed at the U.S. Uh, China's spokesman for the Chinese embassy in the U.S. said, quote, according to the annual cooperation plan between the Chinese and Russian militaries, naval vessels of the two countries have recently conducted joint maritime patrols in relevant waters in the western and northern Pacific Oceans. This action is not targeted at any third party and has to do with the current international and has nothing to do with the current international and regional situation, end quote. The Russian and Chinese militaries have been increasing cooperation in recent years as both nations have faced similar pressure from the U.S. and its allies. So there has been kind of an uptick in Chinese and Russian activity in this area. A big difference between this area and, you know, say the South China Sea, where the U.S. has been encouraging its allies to send ships, or the Black Sea, where before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the the U.S. had a pretty big naval presence in there. I haven't seen that the U.S. has been sending ships in there since the war started, though. Um, But the big difference here is that, you know, Russia's right here. (laughs) Alaska and Russia are very close to each other. Um, And so, and again, it's still just not close how clear they got. Um, But, you know, I was actually going to, I saw this, I I didn't really plan on covering this, but I just saw a lot of, this got a lot of attention, so many people making a big deal about it. So I figured it was worth, uh, you know, covering and kind of putting in, you know, proper context. But I'm sure, you know, that this could, you know, we might see more of this Chinese and Russian patrols in areas that the U.S. won't be happy about, you know, just as a response to what the U.S. has been doing. 
Um, all right, so the last one here, Nagasaki marks the 78th atomic bombing anniversary. So this is from a Japanese newspaper. And so Tuesday, sorry, Wednesday, August 9th is the 78th bomb anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki, which often gets overlooked because everybody kind of marks August 6th as the, you know, the Hiroshima anniversary. Um, but Nagasaki happened just a few days later. So Nakazaki will mark the 78th anniversary of the atomic bombing of the city on Wednesday in a significantly scaled-down event brought indoors due to fears for attendees' safety from an approaching typhoon. So the ceremony, so again, they're scaling it down because of there's supposed to be really bad weather. And Kishida, the Japanese prime minister, is not going to attend now, and other international guests are not attending. It will be the first Nagasaki ceremony not to be attended by a Japanese leader since 1999. Um, so uh, Takeko Kudo, who's 85 years old and is set to deliver the annual commitment to peace, is expected to be one of the only atomic bomb survivors at the ceremony. So the nuclear attack on Nagasaki on August 9th, 1945, came three days after another atomic bomb was dropped on Hir- Hiroshima in western Japan. It is believed to have killed around 74,000 people in the city by the end of the year and left many others suffering in effects for the for the rest of their lives. So the estimation for Hiroshima is 140,000 people, so the two combined is well over 200,000 people, you know, the vast majority civilians, many women and children that were killed by these two American bombs. Um so we'll see, you know, uh, I'm, I'll, I might cover the ceremony if, you know, there's some interesting things uh, said there. Um, but, you know, keep in mind, think about it today again, because Nagasaki often gets overlooked. Uh, that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Edward Lazansky, clearing the fog of unprovoked war. One from Ted Snyder, Ukraine and NATO and the Polish problem. One from Thomas Knapp, tell it to the Marine, no draft, limited or otherwise. I agree very much with that. One from Seymour Hirsch, Operation Buffa in Ukraine. It's from his Substack, but it's reprinted over there at Shearpost. And the spotlight is from Bryce Green over at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Fair. Uh, NBC cites balloon threat in fawning coverage of NORAD. So NORAD are the big heroes that are going to protect us from the scary, scary balloons. Um, yeah, so that is it. You could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Share the show. Uh, one thing I want to give you a heads up, I'm going to be taking off this Sunday. So that means that there will be no Monday show next week. I'll, I'm going to mention it again, of course. But just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, That's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.